We are uh, wrapping up a mini-series within a series. We're doing a series called Inconvenient. The idea of Inconvenient is we want to see your life in Christ just kind of begin to explode. And so what's going to happen is for you to grow in Christ and to see your prayers answered, it's going to be important for us as we approach God that He's going to say, fine, I want to do this for you, and He's going to put you in inconvenient circumstances. Now, we consider that. This is what we consider that. An inconvenient circumstance is when God brings you to a place where you have to make a decision, and it is going to be inconvenient because of your time constraints or your personal preference or your wants or anything else. But you're going to come to a place where you're going to do it your way because it's convenient, or you're going to do it God's way, and it's going to be inconvenient. And I want to encourage you that doing it God's way is what's going to lead to the answer to your prayer. Doing it your way, although it's, it's convenient and easy for you to do in the moment, is not going to get you anywhere near what you want. We've got to be a people who find that it's okay for us to be inconvenienced by God because we are going to be available to Him. And so we're talking about that. Now, in light of that, we're talking about marriages. Uh, marriages are important. Right now, we live in a culture where marriage has consistently um, stabilized, so to speak, over the last couple of decades at falling apart at about 50%. That's the rate that marriages are falling apart at. And you can find it at 48, you can find it at 52, but that number is right there, so I split it in the middle, it's 50%. You may be in here and you may be the victim of divorce, you may be the one that instigated the divorce. What I'm saying is, stick, stay here. We need to talk about these things. You may or may not know it, but a pastor creates a message in one of three ways. And this is an oversimplification. He's either preaching hospital sermons, he's preaching um, educational sermons, or he's preaching evangelism sermons. So we call it soldiering, schooling, or healing. Those are kind of the three um, 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 characteristics of sermons that we're kind of going down. And so today I want to talk to you a little bit of schooling with some hospital, okay? This is information that we need to have. You say, oh, Pastor Joe, I'm not married. I, I get that, but there's a good chance that you want to be married. At some point, there's a good ch chance that you want to be married. Now, you can either get this information now, or you can say, hey, when I get engaged, boom, somebody should just give me all the information. Ten years worth of going to church and, and you know, being married. And it's like, no, it doesn't work that way. See, we do our training as we go. And maybe you're in here and you're saying, I used to be married. Really, do I got to hear this? Yes, you do. Because there's a chance you're going to be in some form of relationship again. And it's important that you have this information. Okay? And so some of you may be in here like, dude, I'm already married. I know everything that's going on. I know how to do this. Okay, but you're in jeopardy. The world that we live in wants to direct your marriage. And so it's important for you to have this information, okay? And so we're doing this. So when we do this, when we do sermons like this, it's very important you understand it's incredibly relevant to our marriages in our community of faith. We should be a people that other people look in and say, how do I keep my marriage going like that? That, that should be the church. Now, it doesn't always happen. But that should be the ideal and the goal that we're shooting for. And so we want to begin and we want to look at this. 
In the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2, we have God giving the ordinance of marriage. He just flat out ordains it. So this is the first ordinance that God gives to us as a humanity, okay? He, he puts um, um, Adam on the earth, and Adam is working, and things are going. But he looks down, and he sees that Adam's not quite getting it done. And so since Adam is not quite getting it done, he says, hey, let's make him a helpmate. And so God ordains marriage. And here it is in uh, Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is, excuse me, that is why a man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, that is the word of God. God bless it through your Holy Spirit right now. But that's the word of God. Okay, And as we approach the Scripture, we need to recognize that God ordained marriage to be one man and one woman, and you can't change that. Okay, People come into my office all the time and say, well, what do you believe about? And, and the first thing I say is, it, it doesn't matter what I do and don't believe about, or what I do and don't think about. What matters is that I am called by God to teach His teachings. And His teaching from Genesis to Revelation is one man and one woman. And he's not being ugly. He's not being awful. The point is, nothing else reflects God. Nothing. And that's the way it's got to stay. And so that's what we will continue to preach here. This was God's plan. Not mine, not yours, not anybody else's. It was God's plan. One man, one woman, and, and I can't apologize for that. This is the plan of God and the way that we move forward. This is what God accepts. Now, Let's just admit that everybody's not going to get married. Maybe you know somebody that never got married in their life. Maybe you know, I know a woman that didn't get married until she was um, 50-some years old, and she got married to a widow, or he was 70 years old. She waited that long, okay? Maybe you know somebody, that, like I said, that hasn't got married at all. Marriage is not a guarantee. It is also not something that has to happen in order for you to be a complete person. We have to get a hold of that understanding. Can I be a little more frank? You don't have to be married to be a complete person, and you don't have to have sex to be a complete person. You are a complete person in Jesus Christ. If you're not complete before you enter the relationship, then you will struggle. Now, I understand we're all broken in some areas of our lives, and that's okay. But the idea is you can't go through life being needy, 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 needy. I just need to get married, 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 married. And then you enter into a relationship, and you think this person will solve all my needs. That's their new job. And that's not going to work. You're supposed to be bringing something into the marriage, not saying, I need to get married so I can suck it dry. See? What are you bringing into the marriage is the goal. Otherwise, you're nothing but a consumer of human beings. And that's not what we're called to do. We're called to be married. The Scripture says a man was called to leave his father and mother. He was called to be united to his wife, okay, to cleave to her, and then they were to become one flesh. And we're going to camp on that just a little tiny bit. We're going to look at this. As we talk about marriages, then I see somebody's ability or not ability, however I'm supposed to actually say that, to get married, inability. Somebody's ability or inability to get married really kind of hangs on a number of different things. The first one, and probably I think the foremost is this, and some of you young people, I want you to get a hold of this. It hangs on your attitude. What is your attitude toward marriage? 
Some of you are like, I'm going to get married, I'm going to be pure, it's going to be great. I just had a talk with the FCA at EKU, had a great time last Monday night. We talked about sex. I said things that made them look at their shoes. They didn't want to look me in the eye. It was awesome, okay? I, 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 I did. But, but some of these people, they just think that, you know, um, um, I have to get married and marriage is for making me happy. You got the wrong attitude about marriage. It is not about making you happy. Now listen, I am not going to join the millions of people on social media that go, marriage is hard. No, it isn't. Marriage is not hard. If you will just crucify yourself, like Jesus said to do, it's not that hard. Marriage gets hard when you want your way. Marriage gets hard, gets hard when it's unfair. Well, Pastor Joe, it's not fair. Listen, fair went out in the garden. Okay? The fair will come to town in the summer. <laughs> but life's not fair. Marriage is not fair. Your job's not fair. The ice cream man is not fair. Okay? Sometimes I give things to one child I don't give to another child. That's not fair. Most of the time I say, don't tell the other kids. Okay? But still, <laughs> I'm not trying to be fair. Thank God, personally God, that God is not fair with me, or I would be in hell right now. You don't want fair. You want grace. And you want it in, in spades. You want it over and over and over and over again. You know what I mean? You, you want as much as you possibly can get. You want that. But what's your attitude toward marriage? What's the circumstance of marriage? I told somebody not long ago, you're probably not going to marry somebody you don't meet. So if your idea is to get married, you're going to have to meet somebody. And then you're going to have to decide where you're going to meet them. Are you going to meet them at the bar or are you going to meet them at church? Are you going to meet them at a gathering or are you going to meet them, you know, at a, at a, a what, I don't know. But, but you've got to decide what are going to be the circumstances. And you're going to have to decide at what age you're going to get married. And then you're going to have to decide, you know, do you have the ability to woo somebody? And I'm just going to tell you, I see some guys on college campuses, I see some guys 40 years old that do not seem to have the ability to understand that they don't have the ability to woo somebody. <laughs> I had a personal friend of mine, a young man that I poured into out in Oklahoma, and this was his manner of, of, of interacting with girls. And I know he was being silly, but he was doing it a little too much, and it left him single for a long time. And he would just simply say, who doesn't want some of this? <laughs> and I would look at him and say, well, me for one. <laughs> and a whole bunch of women out there, you know? And I hear guys say, well, you know what my wife's going to do for me? I need a girlfriend or a wife that's going to do this, 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 and this, and this. And I say, you know what we call people like you? And they say, what? This usually happens at mooching at my house. And I say, single. Forever, okay? You're a consumer of people. And that's not what you're called to be. And so I want to look at this scripture, and I don't want to go as long as I did in the last service. It was really good, but I don't want to go that long anyway, okay? So let's talk about the inconvenience of what God ordained in Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 22. And the first thing is leaving. If you are going to have a great marriage, you have to leave. Not the marriage, your mom and dad. And a lot of people that I meet, even in their late 30s, have not left 
mom and dad and have no intentions of ever leaving mom and dad. As a matter of fact, their relationship to mom and dad is more important than their relationship to their spouse. Because blood, right, is thicker than water. Oh my word. And yet that's not what the Bible says. I'm not supposed to say what the Bible says. Not what God said in the book of Genesis chapter 2. Let's say it that way. The Scripture says that we are called to leave. Now, let me just say this. What that means, parent, is your child is supposed to leave. Back off, okay? When they get married and they leave, back off. Stop calling them and giving them advice. If they call you to ask for advice, give them advice. But stop calling them and say, you know, what you're about to do is really stupid, and I wouldn't do that. Let me tell you what you're going to do. I raised you to do better than this, so this is what's going to happen right now. You're going to do this, 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 and this. You, you're not letting them leave so they can get to the next part. You're actually keeping those strings attached so they cannot do what the Word of God calls them to do. Now, God bless the relationship where you can call your parent or, you know, and you can say, hey, you know, I was thinking about this. What, what do you think I ought to do? Man, that's great. That is great. But when you're grabbing your child, you're saying, no, no, listen, this is what you're going to do. That's dumb. Or, you know, and then that person has to go to their spouse and say, well, my dad said no. It's like, <laughs> what are you, 12? Come on. Quit that. Mom and dad, let them go. My wife will tell you time and time again. I know some of you people, you raise up your children, you're like, <laughs> they're leaving. You don't get it. They're flying the coop. They're, they're not going to be around the house. And listen, I raised five of them and I was like, yeah, go. You're next. Yeah, go. You're next. Launch, launch. If I had a slingshot, I would kick them out of the house. I want the house to myself. I married her. I didn't marry them. They were given to us. We raised them to leave. We want them to leave. You remember last week, we want the whole house back. Give me the orchard from the Song of Solomon, for crying out loud. That's where I want to live my relationship with my wife. Right there. But some of you parents won't let them go. Because you've made your children your identity. You've made raising children your identity. And Jesus should be your only identity. They were a gift to you. They are a gift to you. I'll tell you a secret. Oh, they'll keep coming back. <laughs> Don't you? Some of you young people are like, yeah, mom and dad, let's do this. Hey, you're going back and you know it. You know, you got out of school. You don't know what to do with your life just yet. Can I move back in with you? Yes, you can move back in for a short period of time. Then I want the house back. Ah, oh, gross. I don't want to hear about that. I know you don't, but that's how it's going to be. See, it's okay. It's okay to help our children. It's okay to empower our children. It's okay to be there. But there has got to be a little more leaving. I love that a number of my children even left and went like 13 hours away and lived there for a year or so and then came back. The ones that come back are the godly ones. Don't tell the other one I said that because I really want him to come back. <laughs> but I understand them being close to her parents, and that's wonderful. It really is. But I love that my children went out and decided who they're going to be. And I didn't call them every day and said, are you doing this? Are you doing that? Are you doing this? We didn't do that. But when they called us and said, hey, we're struggling, I'm not afraid to help them. I'm not afraid to give them some advice. But I'm telling you right now, your children need to struggle. They need to. 
best thing that happened to my wife and I was the leaving part. It was a little difficult early on because everything was about, well, you know, let's ask Pop what he says. And finally, I just came to the place where it was like, if Pop wants to earn my money, then Pop can spend my money. But if Pop's not earning my money, then I don't care what your Pop says about my money. It's not, we're done with your Pop. It's it. You know, the, the, our honeymoon, we spent, you've maybe heard the story, but we spent three days with 500 other people in a little town called Northeast Pennsylvania over Christmas in 1983. It was a wicked blizzard. People were literally dying, and, and, and the live people were even being brought into the school that we were all staying in on cots. And my wife will tell you, she thought, well, if my dad was here, he would get us out of this. And here her, her punk new husband that can't even get us down the road out of this blizzard. And my thought was, hey, this is great. It'll melt by spring. Don't worry. She didn't want to move to northeast Pennsylvania. She didn't want it to be her new home. But I was all for the leaving, and we have to leave. Sometimes it's hard because of you, but sometimes it's hard because your parents. But you've been called to leave geographically. You've been called to move to a new location. Make the cut. It's good for you to struggle and determine how you're going to get through something. It's good for you to make a bad decision. I'm not encouraging you to. I'm just saying that when you do, then you own the bad decision and you work it out. You figure out how you're going to overcome it. Because there's going to be decisions, good and bad, all through your life. But those are the times struggling together that I, I relish with my wife, that it was us against the world. Her, her family didn't necessarily want us to get married. They didn't care for me that much, and I understood that. I get it. And I did not cuss them. I, did, I was not mad at them. I did nothing. You know, years later, you know, they came back and said, hey, we just want you to know how proud we are of you. And it, and it, it blessed my heart every time I say it. Oh. <clears throat> Blesses my heart every time I think about them saying that to me. But it also caused us to say, it doesn't matter what anybody else says. If we're going that way, then guess what? We're in it together. We're doing this thing together. Because we left in, in Genesis chapter 21. Well, let me just say this. You're called to leave geographically, called to leave emotionally, and called to leave financially. And some of you young people, let me talk to you now. It's time to cut your parents off from funding you. It's time to stop taking money from your parents. Because here's the deal. I've watched it happen to college students in our house when they're like, I, just, I want to do this and I feel like God's calling me to do this. My parents said I have to do this. And say, what happens if you don't do what your parents say? Well, they'll stop paying for it. <laughs> oh, so your parents are holding you hostage. Some of your parents are like, yeah, I'm holding them hostage. I'll tell you how this is going to be. So I get that. All I'm saying is there comes a time that you want to be treated like an adult. It's time to go ahead and pay your own way, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with paying your own insurance. Your parents don't have to pay your insurance forever. If you're out of the house, you're out of the house. It's time to pay your own insurance. It's time to pay your own phone bill. It's time to, listen, if they're helping you out once in a while, yay. But if you haven't left them financially, you haven't left them at all. You're still there, and I would encourage you to do that. You can't come follow me and stay where you are. It's very, very important. You know, in Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham, it says, the Lord said to Abram before he was Abraham, he, to Abram, he said, go from your country, your people, your father's household to a land that I will show you. And I think we can apply that to marriage. Sooner or later, you've got to leave your country, your people, your tribe. You've got to leave your country, your tribe, and your parents' house. You see how that kind of goes? It goes from big to smaller to small. God is making a point. It is time for you to go off and be your own people. You're still a wood. You're still a whatever your last name is. They're still your parents. 
But you're supposed to be making your own way based on the life that they gave you and, and the blessings that they've been to you. Now make your own way and honor them by doing it. It's very, very important. The second thing that the Scripture says is there's got to be some cleaving. And that cleaving means to cling to, cement your relationship together, and it has the sense of the modern Hebrew of adhere, of glue, of, of concrete coming together. And like I said before, it's the two of you against the, wall, uh, against the world. Your call is to make each other feel as tall and as powerful and, and as courageous as possible. The sad thing is that we go through life as consumers in our relationships, and, and our goal is to get everything we can out of the relationship, and we end up trying to win, and we want to make the other person feel small so we feel better about ourselves and we use the wrong kind of words but when you're together when you're cleaving you have each other's backs you hold each other's dreams and you dream of building a life together the hebrew word is debak d-a-b-a-q figuratively the word debak in the sense of loyalty and affection is based on the physical closeness of persons involved such as a husband's closeness to his wife in genesis 2:24, from vine's expository dictionary of of biblical words. I just wanted to impress you with a book that I have on my shelf for the last 25 years. I might as well use it once in a while, right? But it means that there's a loyalty, there's a belonging, that it's us against the world, that we're glued together. And then in being glued together, um, we have to stay together. And, and, and coming apart, the only way to come apart is if there is a destruction, if there is a ripping apart. And that's the only way that that can happen. And God is very, uh, very big on this. And he told his, so his son Solomon in Proverbs chapter 5, he said this, he said, you guys stay together. And look at how he said it. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Um, should your springs overflow into the streets and your streams of water into public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountains be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer, and may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with... I love the picture of being intoxicated, of being drunk on my wife's love i love the picture that that presents there why my son be intoxicated with a another man's wife why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman and so there's that picture there that says defend your marriage and protect your marriage and keep things out of it and you stay in it see because you're supposed to be cleaving together it's supposed to be you guys against the whole world and you're supposed to stay there and work and fight. And, and it's, just, it's good for you to have to struggle. My wife and I got married, and we were living in a little trailer. It was like a 1954, you know, 50-foot little trailer house, bumper you know, trailer out on the backside of the barn or the farm. And it was great. And, and the air conditioner hung in the window. And, you know, the heater was a wood-fired stove that I almost killed us with one time. And, you know, wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning, you can see clear down the hallway, and that thing was bright as a cherry. And it scared me to death. I, I believe wholeheartedly the Lord woke me up. And, and our, our whole trailer house was wood-paneled. And so it was dry and old, and it was just a tinderbox, and you couldn't put your hand on the wall behind it. It was so hot. And why it didn't burst into flames is because the Lord wanted me here today. I believe that. And so I rejoice in that. And so we recognize that, man, that was, that was us. That was Janice and I doing our thing and struggling. And we loved it. We didn't care that it was hard. So what? We had each other. 
Get that mindset. The third thing that the Scripture says, first it says to leave, and then it says to cleave, and then it says to be one flesh. Become so bonded that you're lost in the relationship. I told you last week that my wife was gone and, and I, was, I was codependent on my wife. And I just want you to know, I don't care what the world says and psychologists says. Okay, you can't become one and not be codependent. Because the concept is, you've become this. And without this, you're not here because you, you share each other's gifts back and forth. You're one because you're together. Apart, you're not one, okay, after, after you've been married. And so I am codependent on her. I don't like when she's gone. I do like the opportunities she has. I don't like waking up and she's not on the pillow. When I do wake up and she's on the pillow, I don't know if I'm looking at her or me. We've been married so long. I see her every time I wake up. Sometimes I just stare at her in a real creepy way, you know? <laughs> because you can stare at him creepy if you're married to him. It's okay. It's all right. And so I did. And becoming one flesh is important. And in and, and, and the fullness of it all, leave, cleave, become one flesh, we're talking about sex. But we're talking about more than sex. We're talking about an intimacy that supersedes sex. But we're talking about sex. And I'm telling you right now, if me saying the word sex in church is making you go, what's he going to talk about next? You should know that I did talk to the FCA about sex. And I told them things that they needed to hear that their mamas are never going to say to them. I did. And you're like, that doesn't belong in church. Yes, it does. It does. You want to know why the world today is so messed up sexually? Because church people sit in chairs and go, you should not be talking about sex in church. Yes, you should. We should be proclaiming that God created sex and it is good. And we should be talking about it in the manner in which it is. We should not be vulgar. We should not be crass. But we should be specific. The truth of the matter is we've got a great children's department over there. And if your child gets to fifth grade and then transitions into here, I hope to goodness you've already talked to them about sex. I was in the coffee shop the other day and I heard people talking about when to talk to their children about sex. And the one guy said, well, you know, I, I think it's about time my child's eight. I, maybe it was nine, but I, I, I just piped up and I said, it's too late. They already know more than you. And they looked at me, you know, I said, yeah. You're too late. The bus has already talked to them about sex. The school has already talked to them about sex. The curriculum from the school that's worldly has already talked to them about sex and has given them some horribly, horribly, horribly messed up ideas about what it is. And then you're saying, why is the world where it is? Because we can't take care of business at church. Because why is the church doing that? Listen, take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. God created us to leave. God created us to cleave. And God created us to have sex. And we have got to be able to talk about it and say that it is okay. God created us to derive great pleasure from each other's bodies. He did. In a married setting, outside of a married setting, there's guilt, there's shame, and there's worry that somebody's going to find out. Inside of a married setting, there's like, woohoo, kick the kids out. <laughs> there is. And it's okay to say that we enjoy it. Solomon wrote a whole book. I mean, do you, you tell your children, now don't read that part of the Bible until you reach the age of accountability. <laughs> You know that idea, age of accountability, isn't in your Bible? Anywhere. Anywhere. 
I have not seen it since I really started reading this thing since 1977. I cannot find that phrase, age of accountability. Your kids are going to read that book and go, oh, I know mom never said this, dad never said this. Yeah, because God believes in sex. He believes in the importance of sex. You know, in 613 laws, in the law of Moses, and from Genesis to Revelation, when God talks about cursing the land, and He talks about idolatry, greed, and sexual immorality. And over and over and over again, those things are put together. That is how much God is, is against sexual immorality. It keeps showing up in the early Bible, and it shows the early side of the Bible, and it shows up in Revelation that nobody does what is sexually immoral is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not going to happen. And I can't make it happen for you. You've got to decide that we're going to walk with God. But it is such a big deal um, that God wrote this in Deuteronomy 24.5, and you can thank me for this okay, later, some of you young men that are thinking about getting married. It says, if a man is recently married, he must not be sent away to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year, he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife that he has married. <laughs> Didn't anybody ever tell me that? You get married, you're supposed to have a whole year off. Your family's supposed to take care of you, evidently. Keep bringing the groceries to the front door while you don't even have to leave the house. You're supposed to make your wife happy, and that doesn't mean dance around and make her laugh. We're talking about pleasing her. That, that scripture is about pleasing her sexually, but it is also about giving her children. You are supposed to give her children. Listen, I, I understand it doesn't, that doesn't happen for everybody either, but let me just say, that's what that's, that is. God, sex is so important to God that he said, you need to stay home for 12 months and just make that girl happy until you figure it out. Okay? And let's just admit, it takes more than I do and then hit the hotel to figure it out. Can I just be frank with you? You're welcome to leave, but can I just be frank with you? A man has 2,000 nerves in his genitalia. A woman, four. Okay? You understand where I'm going, okay? So be aware. Leave, cleave, become one flesh. That's what we're called to do. And all of these, God calls good. It's part of the ordinance of marriage. It's healthy. It's good for you. It's sacred. And God wants you to protect it. I really, I honestly believe, now listen, I, listen I'm not dumb. I know that there, it takes two. I, I, I get that. But if it takes two, for better, worse, poorer, not healthy, then there's a place there where we have to go beyond. It's not 50-50. It's 100-100. And then if you can only give 50, you still overlap 50, believe it or not. But if it's 50-50 and you can only give 49, you've got a hole in your marriage from the get-go. And that's not what God's called us to. So sometimes we have to suffer. And we say, but that's not fair. Fair went out in the garden. Remember? And we've got to hang on to that. But I also recognize that there's such thing as an inconvenient crash. Divorce happens. We have an ideal, 
And in our humanity, we're broken and we miss the ideal. God said in the book of Malachi, chapter 2, he's speaking to Israel and he's got a real problem with how things are going culturally. God is speaking right into the culture. He says, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with your tears and you weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor upon your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You say, why? Malachi says, let me tell you why. It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she's your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. He goes on to say, has not the Lord God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one that he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. See what's going on there? Take marriage serious before you enter it. Are you a consumer or are you a builder? Are you going to build a marriage or are you going to suck everything you can out of that other human being? People will say today, today we need prayer back in school. I don't think so. We need prayer back in the Capitol. I don't think so. Let me finish my thought. We need a president that prays. I don't care. We need to preach hellfire and brimstone. I don't think so. Here's the problem. Prayer never left school. People stopped praying because it wasn't convenient. Well, pastor, do you know what would happen if I started praying in school? I'd lose my job. So So what you're saying is it's not convenient to pray. That's That's exactly what you just said to me. I would rather keep my job than do what God said. That's what you said. That's what you said. That's what you said. Nobody ever stopped you from praying. Oh, they stopped you from going to the front of the class and saying, children, you're all going to pray whether you're Christians or not. It stopped you from doing that. But it never stopped you from sitting down and praying for all 31 of those little kids in your classroom, ever. It never stopped that from happening. You kids, it never stopped you from going to school and praying for one another. It never stopped that from happening. Jesus said, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And when the persecution came, we said, sit down, be quiet. We don't want to lose our job. See? Because it got inconvenient, we sold out. But even that, I don't think, is the breakdown of our society. Not at all. I think it's people being unfaithful to their vows. It's the destruction of the family unit. If the family unit won't stay together, if the family unit is disposable, then I believe our culture believes everything's disposable. See? People need to be faithful to their vows, and most of the people screaming about prayer back in school, prayer at the Capitol, president that prays, hellfire and brimstone, are people that aren't being faithful to their vows. Abraham. I talked to an ultra-Orthodox Jewish rabbi in Columbus 25 years, 26 years ago, actually. It was before I graduated Bible college. At the end of almost killing Sarah's only child, Abraham took Isaac up on a mountain, pulled out a knife. He's going to kill him. Isaac is big enough to carry all the wood, so he's not a little kid. He's big enough to carry all the wood. And he says, Father, we've got the wood, we've got the fire, got the knife. Where's Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says to him, God will provide. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Jehovah Jireh. 
There it is. And he picks up his knife, and he's going to kill the, the young man, and he's, the young man's going to let him do it. And he's going to kill the young man, and God says, Abraham, Abraham, listen, whoa, hey, buddy, listen, I just wanted to see if you'd really do it. God doesn't always say that, but he just wanted to see. And then the scripture says at the end of Genesis 22, so Abraham returned to his young man. He took his son, got up, because there was a ram caught in a thicket, and they made the sacrifice, and they went down to where he had left some of his servants. It says, so Abraham returned to the young men, the servants, and they rose up together, and they went back to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. So I was talking to this rabbi because in Genesis 23, just another verse later, it says, Sarah lived, on, uh, lived 120 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in um, Kerjath Arba, not saying that right, but there it is. Hebron is easy to say, okay? That's where she was. In the land of Canaan, and Abram went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So when Sarah died, when Sarah died, Abraham was more than 26 hours excuse me, miles away. He was more than 26 miles away. He was somewhere else. And I was talking to this rabbi, and he said, you know, there's a, there's a rabbinical theological discussion going on in the ultra-Orthodox Jewish world that they were separated at best, divorced at worst. Because he was a day and a half's walk away and living in Beersheba, and she was down here, or up here at, at Hebron. That aside, we recognize that divorce happens. We recognize that. It's not the ideal. But there's a lot of ideals that we miss, and we don't justify the ideals. We try to live up to them. We do what we can to live up to them until we just can't. I believe the destruction of the home is the downfall of our culture and our nation. After the effects of the sexual revolution, the consequences of Roe versus Wade, men being raised without father figures in the home, women being used by men and then cast aside for the pleasure of younger women, and women being left to handle the whole family all by themselves, except one or two weekends a month. Wow. Let me just say this. God allows for divorce in two situations. Straight out of the Scripture, New Testament, sexual immorality... Jesus said, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And the second one is abandonment. When an unbelieving spouse leaves, Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, said, and a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he's willing to live with her, let her, live, let him, let her not divorce him. But the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God called us to peace. In the event that you are abandoned, God said you are no longer under that bond. In the event that there's uh, uh, an affair, sexual immorality takes place, I'm not talking about pornography. I'm talking about an affair. Then, then there's grounds. Because sometimes you can't come back from that type of a thing. You can't rebuild trust in that type of a thing. And whether you're the victim of that or whether you're the perpetrator in that, there's a place for us to repent of that and say, you know what, I missed the ideal. Or I'm the victim of, of missing the ideal and allowing God to bring healing into our lives. I want you to understand that divorce is not a destination 
And divorce is not an identity. And some of you are camped there like it's who you are. Identity is I am a child of God. Divorce is something you have been through. It's something that happened. It's time to stop making it an identity. Here it comes. And I do believe this is a word from the Lord. And move on. It's time to move on. Stop being ashamed and start being forgiven. Stop being broken. Start find healing. Stop wondering if you're ever going to get divorced and start building into your marriage so that you don't. Build it. Don't suck out of it. I was thinking about that when I thought, how long should a person wait after a broken relationship? And so I looked up some things up. And I'm taking my cues from David Essel. He's a marriage expert. And he, he shares the following. It takes about 365 days of being single, going through your birthday, holidays, and everything else on your own for you to see what it's like to fall back in love with yourself to actually care about yourself so you can care about others. The scripture says, love others as you love yourself. And there comes a time when it's time to look at you and how you care about you. Dating before you're ready is an absolute distraction for you to figure out what went wrong in your last relationship, what went right in that relationship, and what you need to let go of and what you need to hold on to. The person that bounces from relationship to relationship to relationship will continue to do that because they're taking no responsibility for what's happening and they're not changing who they are. And we've got to be willing to come before the Lord and say, God, I'm a victim here or I sin here. And let God cleanse us and then take our time before we become needy. And I want to encourage you in that. God has healing for broken marriages. God has healing for struggling marriages. My goal is not to have the best marriage in the world. My goal is to have a better marriage tomorrow than I had today. That's all. I will be excited because each day it will get better. What's one thing I can do to make my wife Janice feel more important? Doesn't include dusting. I'm no dusting, maybe if the Lord says, okay. But what's one thing that can make her feel more important, more love, more value? What's one thing? That's what I want to do today. And I'm going to continue to build my marriage. My marriage is not something that I have that I got lucky at. I come from a broken home. I'm going to be proactive in not having a broken home. I'm going to build that woman up. And if I don't get to see all of my dreams and wants and whatever's come true, I'll cry like a baby and get over it. And we'll go through life together. These people are up here to pray for you. If you have been through a broken marriage and you would like to be prayed for today, we want to pray for you. If you're in a marriage that's struggling, the smart thing to do is get prayer, get help. If you're in a great marriage and you want it to be just a little bit better, they want to pray for you. If you're not in a relationship at all and you want to be in a relationship, don't be needy, but it is certainly okay you to say, Lord, I would like to be in a relationship and have these people pray for you. And I want to encourage them to do just as that. So, if that's you, they are up here. Don't worry about what anybody thinks. Who, who, who cares? Whatever. Who cares? But I want to give you some homework. I know I went long, 
I knew I was going to. Listen, I want to give you some homework. If you're married, here's your homework. I want you to sit down and read the Song of Solomon to each other dramatically, but you're not allowed to touch each other until you're done. Don't pretend like you don't know that it's going to go that direction. Here's the deal. Husbands will find an away sitter. Grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles, get the kids out of the house. Okay? Let them stay overnight with somebody. The wife will plan a dinner, all candlelit for two. And then after dinner, you're going to do this reading. You're going to open up the Song of Solomon and you're going to read. The man will read the part entitled, because it's cool how it is, it's entitled, Lover. The woman will read the part entitled Beloved, and together in unison you'll read the part that says Friends. It's a homework. I just want to encourage you to actually do it. No, seriously. If you're married, do it. Just make a commitment, say, I'm going to do it. Now, if you're not married, I have a homework for you. You were like, oh man, we don't get a homework. No, you get a homework. It just doesn't include sex. Okay? Let's just be honest. Let's just be honest. Okay? Here's your homework. Even if you've already done this, I want you to do this. I want you to download, buy, or otherwise acquire without stealing or doing anything immoral or illegal a copy of a book entitled, so I'm talking to you college students and some of you that aren't married yet, okay? Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers. It is simply the book of Hosea set to an 1870 time period. And the whole point of the book is to show you how much God loves you. And for you to find God in the characters of the book and to find yourself in the characters of the book. I need you to see. If you, if you want to read Hosea, go ahead. But I'd rather you read Francine River. Not because I'm against the word. I'm for the word. I'm for the word. Don't go there. It's just kind of fun. And homework should be fun. Okay? So I want you to do that. In the meantime, these people are up here to pray for you. We're going to go into this worship song. And we want to pray for you. We want to pray for you because Jesus loves you. And we don't want you to forget.